0: You'll notice that Psalm 10 doesn't have a title um, like the other psalms have. And so many think that Psalm 9 and 10 are connected. Uh, if they're not one psalm, then that they're meant to, to go together. So they have uh, similar language, similar theme, different ways of expressing it, but many see them together. And, 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 uh, and so I, I think that's probably about right. Psalm 10 itself has a, a structure you see in, in, in verse one, this, this plea, this questioning plea. It seems like the unchecked prosperity, of the wickedness, of, of the wicked and the harm that comes on those who love causes us to question. Is God distant? Has he forgotten? I think that would be something that you might ask and have asked or maybe are asking. Why are you so far away, God? He then goes on to describe the wicked in verses 2 to 11. So after that introductory heartfelt plea of question, he then describes the wicked. He tells us what they say, what they think, what they do, and at the heart of it is pride. Verse 3, they boast. Verse 4, they're prideful. Verse 6, they're so prideful they'll not be moved. Verse 11, God doesn't see. So the heart of the wicked is just pride, haughtiness. Arrogance. And then verses 12 to 14, an urgent plea for God to do something. Arise, O Lord, just do something. So after considering the wicked and their pride, God, do something. God hates the, the prideful. So God, do something. It ends then with a confession of faith in verse 14. But you do see. And verses 15 to 18 of this mini song of deliverance. The Lord is King forever and ever. That's the structure. Let's start then with this question Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? What do you do when God seems to be distant? God does seem distant sometimes, doesn't he? Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why? Do you hide yourselves in times of trouble? Maybe you've had a child, a son, or a daughter. Daddy, why? This is what he's asking. We feel pain and anguish, and we should, because there are sometimes awful circumstances in our lives, in the lives of those we love, or in our world. We know, we know that God can do something to fix it doesn't lack the ability, he doesn't lack the wisdom or intelligence on what to do. He doesn't lack the strength to actually do it. So we know he can, but he isn't. We know he's good, we know he's kind, we know he's generous, we know he's loving. And so this all seems so incompatible. God can do it. God is a father who would do it, but he hasn't. And so we have this pain, we have this anguish, we have this fear, we have this sorrow. Why, Father? Why are you so far distant? We feel that distance. We feel it. It's palpable, it's tasteable, it's awful. I think maybe the situation in our country is leading believers to that. Why, why God? Why? Why don't you do something? Now, obviously, this isn't a theological statement. God isn't far away. He is all-present. He's all-seeing. He's all-knowing. But God is here permitting us, as Calvin says, to speak to him. Even though he's the eternally holy God in heaven above, he's permitting us to speak to him as we would to anybody else. This is a great kindness of God to bring our complaint to Him, to even charge Him with something that isn't necessarily true about Him. Yet, the only reason David speaks like this—I think this is David, just because it's connected to verse ten, or Psalm nine—even though we don't say—the um, the only reason the psalmist is speaking like this is because he knows that God is near. God does hear. Why, O Lord? See, there's all caps, right? Lord, Yahweh, Deliverer, the one who sees the trouble of Israel and comes to solve it. He knows that God is near. He knows that God's in his plea. And he's seeking the comfort and support and solace of God in his trouble. So I want to apply this to us. First of all, this is permitted for you to do this. You should do this in your trouble. You should complain to God. You should have the faith to look at your Father in heaven and say, why aren't you doing something? Why are you so far off? You are welcome to bring as a son of God in Christ this kind of complaint to your heavenly Father. I think sometimes we're too good of Christians for this. We're too spiritual. We try to be too perfect as believers. We don't admit that We have this kind of trouble. We don't admit that we're this weak and this pathetic and this sad and this needy. But I also want to, thinking about the kind of church that we're trying to build here, we're trying to build a a theologically sound church. We want to be theologically accurate. We're very intent on that. The songs we sing, we want to be theologically true and and knowable. We want theological rigor in our church. We want to be correct biblically. We saw this earlier on in the Psalms. We want to be the kind of church that delights in the law of the Lord and on his law meditates day and night. In Psalm 2, we want to have the kind of faith and strength to call People to kiss the sun without apology, to repent of their sin. We want to be are in a, a strong church in this sense. But the danger for the kind of church we are and want to become is that we lose any kind of humanity. We lose any kind of feeling. We're so concerned to be theologically right that we can be very wrong. Do you know what I mean? You can do this as a parent. You can do this as a spouse where you're correcting your spouse on something that's true that you should correct, but you're doing it so wrong that you're wrong. Verse 1 is not theologically correct, but it's correct. We can become, in our desire to be true to God's word, cold and hard and unfeeling instead of those who, because we have our theology correct, are warm and kind and tender. We do remember that God is Father and that He welcomes us to pour out our complaints to Him. Because there are times... when we will doubt Psalm 46, that God is a very present help in times of trouble. We'll doubt that. And instead we'll think that, like Spurgeon says, God is an inaccessible mountain to which no man would be able to climb. Because it feels like that sometimes. It might feel like that for you now. Because God's presence is the joy of a believer. The nearness of God is the strength of our hearts. And to feel, to do, as we sometimes do, that God is absent, that he isn't doing what he should do, there is nothing more awful than that. That's worse than the trouble itself. The trouble is trouble, but the greater trouble is feeling as if the Father is hiding his face. So we should learn to pray this. We should learn to yell yell this. It does remind us, too, of our Savior. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The father actually did forsake the son there. If you can theologically get your brain around, two members of the Trinity somehow forsaking one or the other because the son became sin and the father was pouring out his judgment on him. Because the father poured out his judgment on the son, he will never ever do that to us. And so he is never actually distant from us. Our sins may displease him, Our sins may disrupt our fellowship with him. Our sins may create a sense of distance between us and the Father, but we have but to confess, and he draws near again and again and again and again. But because the Father did judge the Son in terrible judgment on the cross, we can always know the warmth of God's presence from us. And then, even in that, cry out, why, O Lord, do you stand so far away? Why are you not doing something? Because I would, if I could. Why don't you? And so have the faith for that kind of prayer. Don't be so good. Don't be so spiritual. Well, the trouble... David explains in great detail in verses 2 to 11. David harms great distance because of trouble, and that trouble is in the form of wicked people are doing great harm to God's people, and yet they seem to prosper so much. And it is eating David alive, and he is angry. So the poor, the powerless, the innocent, the helpless are being persecuted by the wicked, and it seems like the wicked are only growing fat and wealthy and healthy and everything's going all right for him and why isn't God doing something? So David is describing the wicked in verses 2 to 11. They're getting away with murder. (laughs) So God, why don't you do something? The main issue, as I've said, is pride. Now, I don't think, I, I mean, I think you can resonate with this, especially in our day. Those who our wicked seem to be doing well. Those who oppose the truth of God, those who harm the innocent, those who murder the unborn babies, those who abuse actresses serially—there seems to not be justice on this earth for them, and they only get away with it. So this is what we love about God's word. It's not distant. It doesn't have to be worked hard at to apply. It's it's right. There, it's very near to us. The main issue here is the pride of the wicked. Look, look at this. Verse 2, they're arrogant. In verse 3, they boast of the desires of their soul. The desires of their soul, what does that mean? The, the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, he's, he's greedy for gain. It means that the only law of these people is their lust. Whatever they want, whatever they desire is what everybody else should give them. And if anybody's in between that person and what they want, that person their lust, they're going to destroy them. So they're a law unto themselves, and the only law they know is what they crave. They're driven by their desire, their fleshly, carnal desires. They boast of them. They do mean even hide them. That's how arrogant they are. They renounce the Lord in their arrogance in verse three. In verse four, the pride of his face. Do you know where you can see pride on somebody? In their face, you can see it. David's making a judgment based on just what he sees in the expression of their face. They're so prideful. You can just—they're wearing it, saying that God is nothing. Verse 5, they're so prosperous, they're, they're, they're so prosperous, they're so removed, they, they're like NBA players who live in great mansions and yet decry all the injustice that, that we give, right? They're so removed from life that they don't think anything can touch them. It's verse 5. They're, God's judgments are so far away from them. Because they're they're untouchable, they think nothing can touch them anymore. Because their money and their homes and all the other wealthy, powerful people around them will protect them. They puff at their foes. They have no fear. They're so prideful. In verse six, nothing can stop me. I shall not be moved. I'll never mean adversity. It's how prideful they are. In verse 11, he says in his heart, this is a confession of faith. It's deep in his soul. He says in his heart, God doesn't see. I'm so exalted. I'm so great that God himself doesn't see. So this pride, in in this person's pride, Those who turns them into a villain, who preys on those who don't have the means to protect themselves, thinking that God has created a world and populated it with people to gratify the lusts of my heart. That's how this person views life. Everything exists to serve me. And the only real wrong is somebody who won't do that. Right. Does that not make sense of what's going on in our world today? But it's pretty easy to poke holes in Jeffrey Epstein. Right. It's pretty easy to poke holes in Planned Parenthood, who a few years ago, David Daladin showed undercover videos of them selling the parts of the babies that they chopped up. Even talking about one doctor who did it too quickly that they couldn't harvest the parts because he was too good at his job. That's how deceitful and wicked and disgusting they are. We can poke holes in them all day long. We can poke holes in Antifa. We can poke holes in government rulers. We can poke holes in toxic men. But I think we should, first of all, as we look at the pride and deceit in verses 2 to 11, teach us to hate our own pride first. That's what this should do for you. You should be disgusted at how prideful you can be, how self-centered. I do this as a husband and father. I think that my wife and children exist to serve what I want. And so do you, right? Not you. Not you not you, just me. Are you as a mom? Your kids are a lot Your kids aren't doing what you want. Your kids exist to serve your peace and comfort and quiet. And when they don't, you erupt. So we hate in our day, rightly, the hypocrisy of our rulers. Like Nancy Pelosi, who Went to the hair salons that she helped close down, right? I'll have a good laugh at that. But we're just the same, aren't we? Siblings do this. Your kids do that? How many of you have kids who, in one breath, will condemn a child for taking food? And then the very next thing they'll do is take the food that they just condemned their sibling for taking. Do your kids do that? That's exactly what these people are like. You might do this at work. You demand something as a supervisor that those under you should do, but you yourself won't do. You're just prideful. You exist on a different plane than everybody else, and everybody else exists to serve you. So I think first we should apply verses 2 to 11 to ourselves we got planks in our own eyes. We should have the humility to, as we look at the pride that is so evident in the world around us, apply it to ours and know that God even saves us. That's, that's the kind of um, heart we should have in this world, that God would even save me in my pride in my selfishness and in my injustice, that God would even save me. You'll notice in verses 2 to 11 this really unflattering picture of sin. You know that we talk a lot about sin here. We've gone through 10 psalms. Sin is very prevalent in every psalm. It's talked about very explicitly. has been clearly in every psalm. God's word has been given us in part as a mirror to show us our true nature so that we might turn to God and find forgiveness in him and justification and sanctifying grace, that our pride might be laid low so that we might enjoy him. So the reason that we do deal with sin so frequently in our church is that the grace of God might appear so great. Because he's had grace on you. Can you imagine that? That the God of heaven above, the eternal holy God, has had grace on you. If that doesn't stagger you, it's because you're so prideful. Because you think you deserve it. Because you're just a little better than everybody else and you've qualified. So grace really isn't grace then. In grace, God saved you. Can you believe that? He chose you from beginning before the foundation of the world to set his eternal love on you in Christ in time them, he came by his spirit, and made you alive together with Christ, gifting you even the faith necessary to put in Christ. He washed all of your sins away in the blood of his own eternally precious Son. He dwells within you by his Holy Spirit, communicating to you again and again his great love for you. For you. Can you imagine that he did that for you? And that grace appears all the greater as you're willing to admit how absolutely stinkingly unworthy you are of it. So that's why we talk about this so much. But this also exists mainly. That's not what it mainly exists for. Psalm 10 mainly exists to teach us how to pray to teach us how to protect those who are being harmed by murdering against those who are doing the harm. Babies are being murdered in this world. Little girls and women are being taken and used for awful things and sexual sin. The poor and the fatherless are being oppressed. Men are being trodden down in our culture and called toxic just because they're male. Our culture can make it very uncomfortable. Our culture in America can make it very uncomfortable to be a minority person here. We are very unwelcoming to immigrants. We lack hospitality from people who are different than us and do often look down on them. This psalm is teaching us how to protect those kinds of people, how to pray so how should we pray? Well, verse 12. Arise, O Lord. Do something. If you want to put it in more common terms. Arise, O Lord. Lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. God, just, you can do it. Do it. Why don't you do something? That's that's one thing to pray. Verse 15. Break their arms. Call his wickedness to account. God, see what they're doing. Stop it. Put an end to it. Break their arm is metaphorical. I don't think he actually means the breaking of bones. He means end their power. Arm in the Bible is often a metaphor for power, for authority, for rule. Break their authority. Break their power. Break their control. Man, is that play, doesn't it? Wouldn't it be great if so many people have power and authority no longer did? In our world, there are lots of arms that need to be broken. God is the great arm breaker. How about we pray that? Let let me do two things with this, teaching us how to pray. So we're being taught here how to pray for this kind of injustice in our world. God, do something. God, stop them. God, break their power, end their control. Let me apply that in two ways. First, why might we be reluctant to pray this? So I'm trying to get into why might you and I be reluctant? Now, one of the reasons we're reluctant is because it's uncomfortable to consider praying something like that because we're asking God to do something very uncomfortable for somebody else. I get that. But, Another reason why you may be reluctant to pray this kind of fierce warrior prayer, God, do something, break their arms, is because you know that the awful judgment of God upon the wickedness of others, and so you're reluctant because you haven't yet dealt with your own sin. One of the reasons you might be reluctant to pray this for, let's say, an abortionist or a man who is sexually deviant and harming others because you have similar sin and you're reluctant to pray God's judgment on them because your conscience is not clean. You wouldn't pray this against somebody who seriously lies because you know you're a liar. You wouldn't pray this against somebody who is greedy and harming others because you have that too And so we do have to deal with our own sin. We do have to confess it. We do have to forsake it. We do have to grow in holiness by the grace of God. Because in the Bible, it's the righteous who are as bold as a lion. And Psalm 10 is lion bold. Now, we do know that there won't be on this earth any kind of sinlessness. You and I will never attain on this time a sinless perfectionist. And so, this, this psalm isn't just for those who are sinlessly perfect. This psalm is for regular, everyday believers. For you and I, for people just like us who love God, who have real faith in Christ, who are striving to live with holiness without your, which we will not see the Lord, who do confess our sin, who aren't hiding them, who don't have tons of skeletons in the closets that we've never confessed. We, we should take up this prayer and pray it. But one of the reasons you may not is because you just haven't dealt with real severe wickedness in your own life. And I would just urge you to do so so you can be a greater help to those who are actually being harmed. Another reason, though, might be Matthew 5.44. What do you do with some of the psalms we've seen, last week's psalm and this psalm, and yet Jesus tells us in Matthew 5.44, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. How do we make sense of that? How do you make sense of break their arms, oh God? And right, turn the other cheek. I don't know. I do know. Let me tell you why. Um, some of you don't have a sense of humor, and that was just a joke. You know, you're like, oh, what an arrogant guy. He thinks he knows it all. Well, I do. All right. Uh, and if you don't have a sense of humor, like <laughs> you're probably not going to like me very much. Um, so, what do we do with this? What do you do with Matthew 5 or the other places in the Bible where we're supposed to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute you? What well, what well, One of the differences in Psalm 10 and Jesus in Matthew 5 is love your enemies. Love the person who is personally attacking or slighting you. That's Matthew 5, right? Psalm 10 is wicked people are harming God's people. It's being a man and getting between the harmed and the harmer. You see the difference there? Because it is awful, particularly for a man who wouldn't defend his wife from an attacker and yet sit there and praise for his enemy. You wouldn't think much of him as a believer, would you? We wouldn't praise a man who prayed for his enemies while his enemies did harm to his children. <laughs> and That's not a spiritual accolade. I mean, that's not a good thing. There's a difference there. And then the, the context of Matthew 5 isn't this kind of ongoing destructive harm that somebody is bringing. It's kind of more personal slight to your reputation. When Jesus says if you're struck on one tree or the other, he's talking about how to end a conflict. You see this among your kids when they're fighting. How would the conflict end? if one of them just didn't return the, the offense with an offense, right? If one of your children was finally just willing to say, I'll take it. I'm not going to return it. I'm not, I'm not going to give a dig back for the dig you gave me. That, that's what Jesus is getting at in Matthew 5. How do you end personal conflict? Well, somebody has to be the more mature person and not return the missile. So turn the other cheek, just zip it, take it, big deal. That's not what we're talking about in Psalm 10. In Psalm 10, we're actually talking about people's lives and vocation and safety and all of it, their bodies, their everything being taken by somebody who has the power to do it. There's a great difference there. But in our day, this kind of interpretation of a good Christian only being kind so prevails that we have no room for Psalm 10 anymore. The womanish sentiment, this isn't a slight against women, the womanish sentiment of motherly protection and kindness and niceness is the dominant ethic in our culture, and so we have no room for the manly ethic of God break their arms. And the motherly ethic is beautiful and wonderful. But if that's all that there is, you're going to have a whole lot of people getting hurt because these people don't give a rip for your niceness. There was a really good article recently on Uh, I can't remember the name of it, Pathos, P-A-T-H-E-O-S, on an online journal. And he, the author, did a bunch of research on all the Christian evangelical books, churches like ours, the books being written by things like ours, and how degrading they are generally to men, and how wonderful and kind they are to women in these books. So, anything masculine in typically evangelical Christianity is equated with bad. And I, Psalm 10 is rather masculine, isn't it? And we, we must have room for this. It's teaching us to protect those being harmed. That's what this is doing. Teaching us to protect those being harmed. That's why we need little boys who do learn to fight. We do need young men who do learn self-control. Let's do this. The word meek. What does it mean? What the meek, we've talked about this before, haven't we? Have I talked about this? Meeking of a war horse. It, to meek is to take strength and use it in a self-controlled, helpful direction. That's what we need. We need young men who are wise and intelligent and thoughtful and strong and willing to stand up to evil. Why? Because I think the end of verse 14 is one of the most precious realities in the Bible because God is a defender of the fatherless. Now the word fatherless here doesn't just mean orphan. It's it's a synonym just earlier with helpless. Or in verse 18, fatherless is in parallel with the oppressed. So fatherless here just generally means people who don't have the money or the clout or the right connections or the power to protect themselves to those who do. Those who can be taken advantage of. God is a helper to them. God is a father to the fatherless. Fatherless. God is sovereign over everything. And he uses his sovereign power to care for the most, uh, the, the least cared for in our world. And we see this throughout Scripture, don't we? And throughout the history of the world. God cares for those that are not cared for. He protects those who don't have protection. He is a father to the fatherless. God sees God knows, God hears, and at the right time, God intervenes. But that's the difficulty in Psalm 10, isn't it? Is the timing. God always does act. It's just that we often want Him to act before. He deems it wise and right and good and most helpful to act. And so we cry out, God, how long? How long, O Lord? Hey, Hallie and Eliza, you shouldn't be doing that right now. And I love those two. They were starting to irritate me a little bit here. And probably some of you. That's why we cry out in verse 1. Why aren't you doing something, God? Because we want God to act now. But who is God? He's the King forever and ever. He's our King forever and ever. Isn't that verse full of confidence and joy? Just read it. The Lord is King forever and ever. What does that do to you? Does it make you happy? Doesn't that give your soul a thrill? The Lord is king forever and ever. Yes. He governs the world. He's the world's king. All things are under his control. And that is true forever. That is never not true. There is never a place or a time or an instance where God is not controlling and ruling it. There's no term limits on this. God's rule is utter. There's no election. There's no rival. He reigns and he reigns forever. Now take that home to everything going on in your life. That's true in the cosmic sense. It's also true in your particular sense. He is king, reigning over everything in the universe and over everything in your life. Why? Why is God reigning? What does he use his power for? To take care of you. That's what he's doing. He is taking care of you. And his care is to bring you from this day until the day of his son's coming safe. So that when you meet Jesus, you are welcomed. That's what God is doing with his sovereign authority and power. He's taking care of you. But he's doing it in his time because his time is better than your time. So what else do you need during 2020? You've all seen the memes about 2020, like go away or shut the door on it. Like 2020 has been bad, right? -uh. Nuh-uh. This is exactly what God wants for you. He's sovereign over 2020. God is your God. He is king forever, working all things for your good. Let's pray. Lord, we do give you glory, that you are the king over all things, that you rule and reign over all things. And God, help us then to have faith to apply it to our lives, faith to live it, faith to rejoice faith to trust that you are this for us, you are this for us in all of the things that are going on in all of our lives, all of the big, all of the little, all of the awful, all of the good, you are king forever in all those things. And yet, God, give us the faith to learn to pray. Why are you so far away, O God? And to encourage our brothers and sisters in it. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. The charge is this. Uh, I'd like you to take what we learned to pray in Psalm 10 and apply it to your life. Where are those in your life who need that kind of care from God? Uh, Pray it for them. Um, bring Psalm 10 to your life and believe God for it in prayer. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a great week in the Lord and I love you.